0: Hello, I'm Alec Avdekov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. I want to thank all of you who continue to listen to the podcast. I deeply appreciate the support I have received from the community on Patreon. I have to thank our newest patron, Gunther, for being our highest rank, Gerdahl Feldmarschall. Remember that for only $5 a month, you will be supporting the efforts to bring the amazing story of Frederick the Great and 18th century history as a whole to a bigger audience. Do not forget to give me honest feedback, and please reach out to me with any questions. Remember that the 50th episode is coming up, and I would love to hear your questions. So. On today's episode is a very knowledgeable guest on 18th century history with a focus in French history. He is a published professor and an excellent podcaster on the Confused Heap of Facts podcast. Please check that out after listening to this episode, the link is in the show notes below. Honestly, if I tried to research this topic on my own, I wouldn't give it the justice that he did. His name is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I am honored to have him as my guest. There are two main topics of today, however, they feed off each other. These topics are the life of Maurice de Saxe, an extremely interesting character who commanded French armies in the War of Austrian Succession. The second topic is the overall French perspective of the War of Austrian Succession, with a focus on the Battle of Fontenoy. Essentially, we will dive a bit deeper into the Western theater of the War of Austrian Succession in 1745. This is crucial for understanding not just the Prussian situation, but the European situation as a whole. A brief disclaimer that there will be a reference to a sexually explicit act, so keep that in mind when listening. I had a fantastic time in this conversation, and I learned so much from Dr. Abel. The next voice you will hear is my own, introducing Dr. Jonathan Abel. Hello, everybody. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and he is an associate professor of military history at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He began working there in 2017 after receiving his Ph.D. from the University of North Texas' Military History Center in 2014 is a specialist in 18th century the French army, particularly the, the military theorist Guibert, about whom he's written two books and different works. The most recent book, Guibert's General Essay in Tactics, Translated and Annotated, received a Distinguished Book Award this past year. He is the coordinator and host of a very cool podcast, the Confused Heap of Facts podcast. I definitely recommend you all to listen And it's going to be in the link below. Here's a very important disclaimer. However, the views of Dr. Abel are his own and do not reflect those of the US government, department of defense, department of the army, or any other individual organization. So now that we have that important introduction, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in 18th century history and specifically uh, French 18th century history.
1: Yeah, Alec, it's good to be with you uh, on this great podcast. That's actually kind of a funny story. I went to grad school as kind of a misguided medievalist, if you will. My undergrad interests were working with a specialist on the Diocese of Lincoln, I think in the 11th century. So I had every intention of being a medievalist. And so when I got to the University of North Texas, I'm a proud state and directional school product for all of my education. They had a medievalist, but the medievalist was kind of on their way out and there wasn't a real strong advising office in the department so i signed up for two courses and one of those courses was in german history so a lot of the first day meeting was german language research and i I had taken french in undergrad because i grew up in texas already kind of spoke spanish so french was pretty much the only other option and so i go to the department chair the next day and say you know i i don't have any german i can't do this class And he says, okay, I get it. Let me put you in class with this new professor we have. And that new professor was Dr. Michael Legere. And in hindsight, it was kind of obvious that I should have been there to begin with, because I already had an education, knowledge of French, and he was the incoming Napoleonist. So I just kind of stumbled into it. And I also kind of stumbled on my main research topic in late 18th century theory. Uh, I kept reading all these books, you know, by people like Christopher Duffy, and they kept mentioning Guibert, but they never, you know, there wasn't much uh, written about him. And there was very little written about him in English. So uh, it was basically a series of happy accidents.
0: Wow. That's very interesting. That's a really cool story. What piqued my interest was Christopher Duffy. He was definitely a prolific author.
1: Yeah, yeah, very few of us would be where we are without Duffy and his uh, his many books. Yeah, tremendous
0: research. I, I always consider 18th century history as a sort of Russian nesting doll, in a way. The more you open the dolls, the more interesting and intricate it gets. And you can go all the way until the atomic level, and you'll still find more interesting things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that we've profited from immensely over the last generation is so many primary sources are being digitized now so you we have access to many more resources than we used to have kind of the old the old model of going to the archives and furiously scribbling with your pencil you know now you can you can have access both digitally and going in person photographing to a huge array of sources and not just from the traditional places right you know there's there's plenty to study on the the kind of great captains like Friedrich from Prussia, but there's also a lot of avenues to open in other areas, and other states, and other places that don't traditionally get a lot of attention in the spirit, like Italy or Eastern Europe. So yeah, it's, this is a great time to be an 18th century specialist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So shifting topics. Now today's main topic is going to be twofold, but they both feed into each other. Basically, Maurice de Saxe, who is an important commander for the French army at the time in the 1740s, and the Battle of Fontenoy. So can you tell us who was Maurice de Saxe and why was he important to the 1740s?
1: Yeah, he's a fascinating figure. So Maurice de Saxe is in many ways kind of this lightning bolt in the early, mid 18th century in the French army. As his name suggests, he's a German. He is His official title is he is a Count of Saxony. That's what Maurice de Saxe means. He was descended from the Wettin House that holds the electorship of Saxony. But like so many of his contemporaries, he was not legitimate. His father is Augustus the Strong, Augustus II, who is the elector of Saxony, and also the King of Poland. The electors of Saxony are kings of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for a good chunk of the 18th century. And Augustus II was known as the Strong. He's this immensely physically strong person. He's a very important figure in in the 18th century. So he starts the tradition of Meissen or porcelain, this great, really almost a theft of Chinese style porcelain techniques that grows in in what is now Eastern Germany and becomes one of the hallmarks of, of German material culture of the period. But he's also known for being a prolific father of many, many illegitimate children. Nobody's been able to figure out how many, but the lowest number you see is about 250 illegitimate children. So, so basically, the Genghis Khan of Central Europe, yeah, right? Right? Yeah, that's a good comparison. And so, Maurice is one of these. Um, and as you can imagine, being one of the many, he's he's kind of lost in the shuffle for a while. His mother is actually a, a Konigsmark, and the Konigsmarks are are an important family in German history as well. Voltaire called her the most famous woman of two centuries. And he has several uh, full brothers and sisters in addition to his many, many half brothers and sisters. But like I said, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Um, he goes into the Saxon army early in the century. He sees a little bit of combat at the tail end of the War of Spanish Succession and around Malplaquet and the sieges of Tournai and Mol. And he also fights a lot in Pomerania. That's, that's one of the major themes of his early life, that he does a lot of fighting in and around Swiss Pomerania. And he kind of he kind of drifts around Europe for a good chunk of his early life. He ends up fighting in the Ottoman War in the 17-teens. Um, and then he decides that he's not going anywhere in Germany, in the Imperial Army, or even the Saxon Army. And so after having kind of apprenticed under Marlborough and Eugene of Savoy, in 1720, he goes to France, where he buys a unit, which is normal in the French Army. And he links up with a very important theorist named Folar. I argue Folar is kind of the foundational military theorist of the 18th century. He's the one who invents modern military theory. So Sachs kind of becomes his protege in the same way he was uh, Marlborough and Eugene's protege on a battlefield. And he gains a little bit more experience, both experiential and theoretical, as he grows there's a brief marriage in there. It's annulled pretty quickly for the rest of his life. He basically lives like his father, which is having lots of affairs. Uh, he's also considered, interestingly enough, he is considered a very likely husband for both Anna and Elizaveta, who become czars of Russia, and in large part because he has this connection to the Duchy of Courland, which is now largely in Latvia. He is offered the duchy as duke in 1726 now he doesn't hold on to it because the russians take it but supposedly the patent that gave him the duchy was his most treasured possession up until the point he died so what this is what this is painting is a picture of somebody who is really a citizen of europe he's one of these kind of cosmopolitan officers who's all over the place even though he is a bastard his parentage opened doors for him opens doors for him and he's kind of just trying to find a place to stick and he doesn't really do that until the War of the Polish Succession, which is, for your listeners who may not be aware, the Polish Succession is a major war fought in the 1730s. It doesn't get a lot of attention in English because the British didn't participate in it, but it's a major war over who's going to hold the Polish throne. Basically, the French are supporting a native Pole named Stanislaw Lachinski, whose daughter is married to Louis XV. The, the empire and others are supporting Maurice's half-brother, who becomes Augustus III of Saxony. So he ends up fighting in and around the Polish succession. And that's the point where he will receive his first command in 1735, kind of the last major year of hostilities. So despite not having a ton of experience... By the time we get to the late 1730s, as the Austrian succession is about to break out, he is one of many commanders in the stable of France. Now, just because he's held a command doesn't mean he's going to get a major command in the Austrian succession, which starts in some ways in 1740, although not yet for France. So that's kind of his early life and career. You know, you can kind of see him one of two ways. He is a person who has a very high sense of personal honor He's got a lot of skills, we're going to find out later, and he's really just finding a place to employ it. The other way to look at it is he's this kind of dissolute, licentious person who's, I mean, he's basically Don Quixote. He's running around Europe looking for a war to fight, looking for a duchy to claim, you know, <laughs> despoiling lots of young women and the fine tradition of his house. Um, and I, I don't think either of those is wrong. I don't think either of them paints the full picture, but I think there, there's there's truth to both. That kind of takes us up to the start of the Austrian succession.
0: All right. I have
1: a little bit of an interesting question. So
0: I've noticed throughout my research in, in 18th century military history that you see a lot of foreign officers throughout all of Europe not fighting for their native homeland, I guess, would be the term. But yeah, Maurice de Saxe, obviously today's example, but uh, later on down the line, James Keith and the Prussian army. Why were there so many foreign officers throughout Europe?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I think the answer to that gets at, at one of the ways we can kind of have misconceptions about the past. Uh, we live in a world, you know, in 2023, when we think of armies as being national armies, armies that come from states with the citizens of those states fighting for the causes of the state and and in some way inspired by patriotism or nationalism now the russo-ukraine war has shown us that that's not a completely accurate model with in particular the wagner group of mercenaries if you will but that has been our model for most of the 20th and 21st centuries but that's not the way armies were constituted in the 18th century basically Armies were not purely national institutions. Um, they, They did have a sense of nationalism. People at the time used terms like, in France, patrie, fatherland, nation, and terms we would recognize now as patriotism. But those were not limiting, necessarily. So, for example, by the end of the Seven Years' War, Friedrich II's Prussian army is not Prussian, Right. It's it's a large number of people he's hired out for that he's gotten from other places, sometimes whole units, sometimes just people. The same was true of Gustav Adolf, the, the great Swedish king in the Thirty Years' War. You know, by, by the time he died, his army was something like 15 percent Swedish. So this is normal. It's normal to get soldiers that are not from your country, especially if you're from a small, poor country like Prussia. Right. right? Like we know Prussia turns into Germany and it's, you know, it's big, powerful, populous state. But in the 18th century, Prussia was tiny, and it was a backwater. It was mostly swamp, actually, the kind of the heartland of Prussia. No, swamp and sand, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's not true of France. Now, France has a giant population, probably around 25 million in 1750. So France can afford to not hire out. France can afford to man its armies from native sources, although about 25% of France's soldiers are not native-born. There are foreign units in the French army for a variety of reasons. So the baseline is armies are not national in the way modern armies are national. That starts in the French Revolution. That's especially true of the officer corps. Officers are, in most countries in Europe, and this is true of France, officers are almost exclusively nobles. So it's rare to see somebody who's truly a commoner become an officer. And there's reasons for that. That's, that's another podcast. But nobles belong to a state that is not a geographic state. They belong to the state of nobility, which is why they refer to each other as cousin, right? Even if they're not actually related. So in that sense, the, the officer corps of Europe is a cosmopolitan transnational organization. And it was perfectly acceptable to pass from the service of one country into the service of another, even during the same war. It might be considered in bad taste in some cases, but but it was certainly, you wouldn't necessarily see people cast aspersions for it. Um, now, if you did it in the middle of a battle, then you, know, you might have some issues, but there are reasons it happened, right? And so it's not unusual to see people who are of an ethnicity, or even as we would say today, a nationality that doesn't fit the army they're fighting for. A great example of that is the early 18th century French Marshal Berwick, who, as you probably guessed from his name, is from the British Isles. And there's this long tradition, too, of Catholics from around Europe fighting for the French, which is why you have Irish units in particular and from other Catholic states as well. A lot of Swiss Catholics end up in French service, although a lot of Swiss Protestants as well. And so those are just a couple of the reasons why you might have an officer corps that, you know, with names that are not French in France uh, or a, a soldiery that doesn't look like the nation. I'm doing air quotes there, although that is a term they would use. That's a fascinating aspect of warfare in the past that we don't necessarily Have a a frame of reference for. We think of war as either being between national soldiers or perhaps, you know, mercenary groups that are still serving national causes like the Wagner Group. It doesn't work that way before the French Revolution, and in many cases after, but certainly not before. You know, these are professional organizations being served by professionals, most of whom, including the soldiers, are not. Conscripted, they're they're volunteers, uh, even if they're sometimes coerced. You know, it's less akin to a modern large scale conflict conscript army like the U.S. Army in World War II, and it's more akin to think of it like a competing business. Think of it like accounting firms competing over you know the accountants coming out of school every year. Um, that's kind of how armies worked, especially in peacetime. Remembering there's only a few major wars in the 18th century; there was lots of minor ones. So so that's a, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, no, I, I deeply appreciate it. So
0: to sum up, I believe it's not quite a national army, not quite a mercenary army, but somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the term mercenary, of course, is one we can debate endlessly. Um,
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: You know, and, and they did at the time, too. I was deeply curious about that, so thank you.
0: So going into the early 1740s, Frederick obviously invades Silesia starting the War of Austrian Succession, but France does not immediately join. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Cardinal Fleury, the minister in charge of uh, French foreign policy at that time, was uh, in his 80s by then, I believe. So very old man conducting French foreign policy, uh, especially for those times. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of what the French perspective of the opening of the War of Austrian Succession was?
1: Yeah, that's a kind of a complicated answer, but I'm glad you asked it because I think part of the problem of the way we think of the Austrian Succession is we have been skewed too much to just the Prussian view of it. The Prussians play a key role in the war. And of course, you know, Friedrich's invasion of Silesia is the precipitating event of the war. But it's not just about that. And people who read, for example, John Lynn's Wars of Frederick the Great, which is an amazing survey of, of the warfare of this period, you, know, you could forgive them for leaving that book with the impression that this war was entirely about Frederick and Prussia. In the same way that if you read an American history of World War II, you could be forgiven for coming away from that and not appreciating the Russo-German War in World War II. So the Austrian succession is about a lot of different things going on. The proximate cause is the failure of the direct, well, it's kind of a semi-direct Habsburg line. So when Charles VI dies in 1740... He had spent his entire reign trying to get the princes of Europe to agree to his daughter inheriting his direct titles, like the Archduchy of Austria, and her husband, who was Francois. At the time, he was the Grand Duke of Tuscany, which he gained in the Polish succession, and him becoming emperor. Well, a lot of people signed up for it for whatever reason, But in particular, France looked at that and saw an opportunity, the opportunity being to break the Habsburg hold on German affairs. Now, let's remember something very important. In the various treaties that make up the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, France was a guarantor of German affairs. So France has the legal right to intervene in Germany. So they didn't just wander into the war as an aggressor. They are acting according to their treaty obligations dating back, at this point, almost 100 years. So what the French want to do is they want to knock the Habsburgs off the imperial throne. And instead, they want to place a prince from Bavaria, who eventually does become the emperor, Carl VII. He's a Wittelsbach from Bavaria. The Bavarians are Catholic. They're strong allies of the French. They don't want to be run over by the Austrians. So that's the main reason the French want to intervene in German affairs. Now, the flip side of that is that Fleury, who was Louis XV's tutor and takes control of the government in the late 1720s, as you rightly point out, he's a very old man by the 1740s and he's going to die pretty soon into the war. Fleury has a different idea of what French foreign policy should be. Uh, Dating back all the way to Francois I in the early 1500s, French foreign policy has been anti-Habsburg. It's been, let's break the control the Habsburgs have over European affairs. And at that point, they control half of Europe. Spain, the Low Countries, Burgundy, Austria, the Empire. So it makes sense. Fleury wants to go a different direction. Fleury sees a new problem which is North Germany, the North German Protestants. And it's not so much a confessional issue, it's just that's the way it kind of happens to work out. But more than anything, Fleury wants peace. Fleury wants France to set aside its traditional rivalries with England, with the empire, the Habsburgs, with the Spanish, who are now from the same royal family, the Bourbon, and pretty much with everybody. And he wants to develop France. uh, He wants to develop its overseas colonies, its trade. He wants to develop it internally without these wars that Louis XIV fought that devastated the country. So that's kind of what Fleury is trying to do. That's the main reason France does not enter the war in 1740 when Friedrich invades Silesia. The other thing going on, though, is that Fleury is not the only voice in the French government. There's another group of people, and it's unfair to say that their leader is Belial, who will come to be one of the major figures in the war and the next war. But he is one of the leaders. Belial hates the Habsburgs. But weirdly enough, Belial is the grandson of the disgraced finance minister of Louis XIV, K., okay? And he's kind of trying to redeem his his family. His father basically lived his life as a you know a recluse. So, Belial uh, he goes into the army. He's he's a fantastically talented general, one of the few the French produced during the century. He is anti-Habsburg. He wants to go fight the Habsburgs. Uh, Louis the Fifteenth is never a decisive king he is he can be but he also sometimes changes his mind so he is convinced by beliel that france needs to support the bavarians against the habsburgs so you have this kind of farce for the first couple years of the war where the bavarian army is largely french wearing bavarian uniforms so france is not technically in the war until i forget the exact date it's either late 1743 or early 1744 i believe 1744 yeah like i said you have this kind of charade for the first couple years now the thing that makes this war really complicated is there's other fights going on so the french and the spanish are fighting the Habsburgs in italy largely for spanish gain. we forget spain is still a great power they're still fighting to regain all the territory they lost in 1714 and the French are also fighting the English as a colonial war. So the French and Spanish are fighting the English all around the world. The Dutch play a role as well. The Russians are allied to the Habsburgs. In fact, this is the first time we'll see a Russian army in Central Europe, this kind of marathon march of a Russian army all the way to the, to the Rhine by the end of the war which scares a lot of people. So the Russians and the Swedes fight their own war during this war, and Sweden is a traditional French ally. So if this sounds really complicated for your listeners, that's because it is. This is a horrendously complicated war with lots of fronts. It's really a series of small wars being fought as part of the larger war. For the French, there are two major conflicts going on. There's the Franco-English War, largely in the colonies, and then there's the franco habsburg War, in which... Friedrich of Prussia is an unreliable ally because he bounces in and out of the war. So that's kind of the overarching picture of the war from a a French and from a non-Prussian perspective.
0: All right. So how does
1: Maurice de Saxe
0: get into all of this? How does he participate during the early stages of the war against Austria?
1: Yeah. So like I said, Saxe at the beginning of the war is kind of a, he's kind of in the stable. He's somebody who, for obvious reasons, knows German affairs. He's also somebody who's close to Louis. We have unfairly maligned Louis XV as this kind of do-nothing king who, you know, had let his affairs be run by other people, by Fleury, later by Pompadour. There's a lot of sexism in that criticism. Louis was very involved in affairs. He just didn't do so in a way that was public. He, he had this desk built that would be lifted into his bed every day so he could work. And he worked very long hours. He was basically his own secretary. So Sachs is close to Louis. And Sachs has the ability to influence Louis. I would liken him to kind of a senior military advisor. And of course, he has his pedigree, unlike somebody like Belle whose pedigree is suspect at best, right? His, his grandfather was a traitor to the state. So he plays kind of two roles early in the war, that advising Louis in and out of Versailles, where the court is, um, but he also goes to fight. And most memorably, he's involved in the Prague campaign, where the French kind of thrust through, again, wearing Bavarian uniforms through Germany, into Bohemia, and they actually take Prague. The problem is they're hundreds of miles from France, even, you know, they're far from Bavaria. They can't sustain it. They end up having to weather a siege, and then there's this epic retreat from Prague in the winter as the last units extricate themselves. It's a great story. something somebody needs to make a movie out of. But Sax really begins to make a name for himself in the French service at the Siege of Prague. He is basically charged with taking the city, and he does. He manages to get some men over the wall, and they open the gates, and so the French are able to take the city of Prague without a prolonged siege, without losing a lot of people storming the wall. So he becomes kind of a hero in France for that. And then he's kind of disappointingly brought back to be a cabinet general. I think he probably ran afoul of belle and some other people at court. You know, he didn't really have time for court politics. So he doesn't really do anything until 1744. So by that point, the French are in the war and he's given command of one of the armies. There are four armies. So once France finally comes into the war formally, they leverage their massive army and they put four field armies basically abreast from the coast, the Channel Coast, all the way down to the Rhine, basically World War I. And the idea is they're going to take all four of them and push forward. Well, the problem is the main Habsburg commander, Charles, is on the Rhine, and he caves in the French right so they can't do anything. They have to shuffle reinforcements south. The king himself goes south. And so Maurice is kind of left sitting on the coast. His task is to organize an army that, to try to put the Stuarts back on the throne of England, um, and then this is where you get into the Jacobites. Now, I'm not a I'm not a British historian. I you know I, I know about as much about the Jacobites as anybody um, who's not a specialist in them.
0: Don't worry. There's going to be a special episode about. The Jacobites and the eventual forty-five rise.
1: Oh yeah, there's there's plenty of specialists on it. I I will not uh, attempt to do that any justice. But for the French, the Jacobite rising is kind of a hail mary. They're pretty sure it's not going to work, but you know they may as well throw some money and men at it. So Maurice gathers up all these boats and all these men. He's putting together an expedition to put the Stuarts back on the throne. And we start to learn things about Maurice in these campaigns. Uh, Maurice is a meticulous planner. He had come up kind of through the siege craft of the various armies, the the engineering, we would now say branch of the various armies he'd been attached to early in his career. And so he's very much a planner. He he pays a lot of attention to details. He is a a prototypical, what we would now refer to as a staff officer. They didn't use those terms at the time, but that's, that's kind of what his expertise is. Using these kind of new enlightenment ideas and siege craft and kind of the Vauban style and he applies that to field combat, which is which is something relatively new, as we'll see. We'll talk more about that in detail when we get to his, his Flanders campaign. But we start to see those elements emerge here of him as a commander. Now, he's commanding the smallest army, and he's not doing anything. But it's clear that he has certain skills, unlike a lot of his peers. One of the things that's apparent in the mid-century wars, the Polish succession, the Austrian succession, especially the Seven Years' War... France is not producing good general for whatever reasons, bad luck. Maurice shows himself to be, at least as a planner, an exception to that, leading us into 45, when he finally gets the chance to command an army in a major campaign.
0: All right. So now we get into the Low Countries, or back then the Austrian Netherlands. So Maurice de Saxe, he is now commanding an army and is about to invade Austrian Netherlands. So we now reach the point where there's going to be a battle. What happens? What happens during the invasion and eventual battle?
1: Yeah, so going into the campaign season in 45, Maurice now in some ways becomes the main effort. I think Louis and his advisors realize that they're not making any progress on the Rhine. And even if they do, there's nowhere to go across the Rhine. They're just fighting their way through fortresses. They also have traditionally seen what is now Belgium. At the time, it was the Austrian Netherlands as kind of their territory. It's been part of France in the past. They know it. They fought lots of wars there. So instead of the, the prior years, uh, the 1744 plan, where you kind of had an even effort weighted towards the French right on the Rhine, in 45, we're going to weight it the other direction. So Louis gives Maurice a giant army. It's, I think it's 85,000 men to start the campaign, which is pretty big. Wow, that's huge back in those days. Right, right. And remembering, there's two other French armies to the east and south of Maurice. And Louis himself will go. We forget, we think of Louis XIV as the military king and Louis Fifteenth as the king of the bedroom. But in fact, it was the other way around. Louis XIV never participated in a major battle. Louis Fifteenth did. So Louis Fifteenth is technically commanding Maurice's army. And he's got lots of important people around him, uh, including princes of the blood. But it's clear that Maurice is the one who's commanding the army. I mean, I don't remember if he has his Marshal's baton by this point. I think he does. So that gives him a certain cachet. But what Maurice does is he drives into the low countries. And we learn a couple more things about Maurice in this campaign. One, he's very cautious, unlike a lot of his French contemporaries who would rather die at the head of their troops than conduct a good campaign. Maurice is very cautious, sometimes to the point of criticism. He's often criticized for being too cautious. And two, his meticulous planning is going to pay off. He's very good at planning not just a battle, but a campaign, which is a series of actions aiming towards an operational or strategic goal. He's also good at developing subordinates, which most of his contemporaries were not good at. In particular, pretty much out of nowhere, grabs this commander named Lowendahl in the French service, and Lowendahl becomes his right-hand man. If your listeners are at all familiar with the American Civil War, the Confederate Army was the strongest when it was commanded by Lee with Stonewall Jackson as his kind of right-hand man. Lowendahl is that to Sachs. Uh, He's a very good commander. He's one of the few commanders who can operate autonomously or even independently, as we'll see in a couple years. But basically what culminates in the Fontenoy campaign is the French drive into the Low Countries, and there they encounter a what we would probably call an Allied army. It's British commanded. It's I believe it's the Duke of Cumberland um, who's commanding it, and it's got a strong Dutch contingent as well. It's got some Austrians in it, so it is truly an Allied army. We ascribe it to Cumberland, but it's really kind of a, a team commanded thing, which was normal for the time period.
0: Much like later on in
1: the same region, actually, uh, Wellington's army. Yeah, yeah. And I had the privilege of chairing a thesis on the Dutch army in the 1815 campaign last year. And it's, yeah, it's very much a national army, even though, even though we don't always think of it that way. But yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. So the idea is the French are driving into the low countries and the allies have to stop them. So that takes us to the village of Fontenoy and... That's where the great battle takes place. It's not exactly an encounter battle. We know the battle's going to happen there, but it's not something anybody had really planned to have happen. Rarely are battles planned to take place where they do, particularly in the pre-modern era. It's a little easier now where you have things like satellites, but Fontenoy turns out to be a great place to fight a battle. Uh, so what Maurice does is he gets to the battlefield first and the, the whole idea is the, the way Maurice fights kind of operationally. We'll, we'll zoom into the battlefield in a second. But the way that Maurice fights operationally is he's looking at fortresses. And the idea is he wants to take the key fortresses in the region in order to kind of pivot off of them to control territory so that he can then go forward. So the key fortress in the region is the fortress of Tournai. That's what he's aiming at. And that's why we're at Fontenoy. It's the nearest, you know, decent sized cities or village, I guess, is Antoine. But Tournai is the fortress nearby. So that's what the allies are trying to prevent. They're trying to prevent the French from taking it. So Maurice gets to the battlefield first and he looks at the battlefield and he prepares it in a way that his peers, his contemporaries did not normally do. Mm So what he does is he looks at the battlefield and he sees that he's got a river that he can use as his backstop. And in front of the river, in advance of the river, he's got a village on his right, another series of villages further ahead of him and a forest to his left. So what he does is he bulldozes the village And he uses the village to build a series of redoubts, basically uh, mini fortresses, a couple of them behind the forest on his left and three of them on his right. Now, this is an innovation because this is siege tactics. This is how you build an approach to start a siege. But because of his background in, as I said, kind of staff planning and engineering, he brings that to a field battle in a way that most of his contemporaries wouldn't do. Now, this is good for him because it turns out it's it's more or less what wins him the battle. So he sets up this defensive position where he's got, again, on his left, he's got this forest with a couple redoubts in it. And through the forest, he scatters a bunch of light troops who can skirmish. There's a gap between the forest... And the redoubts on his right, and we'll talk about that gap in a minute, on his right, he's got three big redoubts with all of his guns behind them. And this is important, too, because the idea of linking field fortifications and artillery is not something you see in field battles, particularly outside of Prussia at this point. Now, the gap in the middle is the problem, and that's exactly where the majority of the battle is going to take place. So Cumberland arrives. He looks at this position and he looks at how Maurice has arrayed his forces. He sees the defensive position. He sees the forest and he sees that Maurice has basically stacked up his infantry with his cavalry behind them in this gap in the center. And then on his left, on Cumberland's right, behind the forest for the French in front of the forest for the Allies, is Lowendahl with a lot of infantry. So Cumberland looks at this and says, okay, we need to figure out how to attack it. So Cumberland's attack at Fontenoy will basically be three kind of efforts. He's going to push units on his right, the French left, into the forest, into the skirmishers and redoubts, and eventually pass that, ideally, into Lowendahl's forces. He's going to, on his left, the French right, have the Dutch and part of his units attack the Redoubts, those defensive positions that the French have their artillery behind. Uh, And then Cumberland's main effort is going to be straight through the center. He's basically going to take advantage of the British soldier, who's one of the better fighters of the era, and push them through the teeth of the French defenses in the center until he can break them and then do what we would call rolling up the flanks. So that's exactly what happens. The problem is Cumberland's plan doesn't take into account a couple of different things. One, Cumberland doesn't understand the efficacy of the French fire. The skirmishers in the forest, and especially the artillery behind those redoubts, just crushes the two wing attacks. They go nowhere. Um, and there's some debate over whether the, the commander of the attack into the forest knew what he was doing. There's a strand of, of analysis of this battle that argues that that's what lost it for them. But either way, the the wing attacks largely fail. They're driven back. The attack in the center actually succeeds. The British push through the French center. They break the French infantry in the center. They break a, one of the lines of cavalry until they've got this weird kind of box formation it almost looks like an infantry square except it's huge it's you know it's it's uh, you know tens of thousands of men and at that point Saxe is actually worried that he's lost the battle he's ill and so he's kind of commanding from a litter there's some indication he might have ordered the king or requested that the king depart the field uh, as well as the dauphin the, the heir to the throne is on the battlefield as well but then he kind of rallies Saxon in particular, will push his cavalry into the teeth of this British box formation in the center, and then he'll turn his guns on it. And this is the thing that really is signals a change in the way battles are being fought. You can't just mass units together anymore when you have artillery on the battlefield. And between the efforts of the French noble horsemen and the guns, Cumberland is forced to retreat both sides take massive casualties, and uh, Maurice wins the battle, basically secures the success of the operation for the year, and cements his legacy as this great, not only battlefield commander, but a great operational commander. However, this is just the beginning. So, we, you know, we focus a lot on Battle of Fontenoy, and there's lots of books written about it, and, you know, people pay a lot of attention to it, but this is just the beginning of Maurice's campaigns.
0: Wow. Well, so what were the overall
1: impacts of the uh, aftermath of the battle? Yeah, so that's a great question. What, What Fontenoy does is Fontenoy, it allows the French to continue their push through the Low Countries. It doesn't break the Allies. In fact, they'll come back. Cumberland himself will come back. The Allies will come back with other armies. Eventually, the main Habsburg army will come to the Low Countries. But what it does is it allows... Maurice, one, to take the good position, to take Tournai, but then to use that to move on. And basically, every year for the remainder of the war, there's a major battle. So in 1746, there's a battle at Rucco, and 1747, there's a battle at Laufeld, and they're fought the same way. Maurice takes a defensive position, he uses siegecraft on the battlefield, and racks up a massive casualty toll on both sides. In fact, he's almost fired for this. He's in particular almost fired after Ruko, which even he admitted was kind of a mistake. Uh, But what he's doing around these battles is just as important as the battles themselves. The battles open the way for him to take the key fortresses. So what he does is he takes the main army and he detaches Loendal to go take other undefended places. So while he's fighting the allied armies, Lowendal is taking cities like Antwerp. And so that's enabling Maurice to conduct not just battles, but conduct a real campaign. Um, and this is one of, this kind of signals the shift from, uh, you know, 18th century, what's often referred to as cabinet's krieg, this kind of idea of limited wars with, with, you know, rare battles to modern warfare, which is stringing battles together into campaigns, moving from the tactical level of war up to the operational and strategic levels, and Sack shows himself to be a master of this. I think Roucault and Laufeld kind of, I think they do kind of color the victory at Fontenoy. I think they show that Maurice was not necessarily a great tactical commander, but of course he doesn't need to be. An army commander doesn't need to be a tactician. That's why that's why you have you know captains and colonels. He shows that he and Lowendal, not incidentally, are far above average operational and strategic commanders. By the end of the war, Maurice has essentially taken all of what is now Belgium, and for the first time in a very long time, he has taken the city of Maastricht, which is in the, the southern part of the Netherlands. It's that little finger of the Netherlands that pokes down to the south. Maastricht is the key to the Netherlands, the entire Netherlands, not the country, the Low Countries. If you take Maastricht, you control all of it. So by the time he takes Maastricht in 1748, he is the one dictating the peace terms. Basically, he and the commander of the Habsburg Army work out the peace treaty that's later signed at aix chapelle or Aachen, as the Germans call it. So by that point, he has made himself the premier general. And I would say this even knowing that, that Frederick the Great is fighting in this war. I would say he makes himself the premier general of the first half of the 18th century i don't think we see frederick's talents really until the next war
0: well i mean consi- considering he ran away at molvitz and right was if he had but either way um right i i find this very interesting I, I just concocted this in my mind but maurice de Saxe sounds like the antithesis of frederick the great's commanding style Frederick solved strategic problems through tactical excellence, whereas it seems that Maurice de Sachs focuses on the operational and strategic level and is if at the tactical level. Is that a correct hypothesis, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think the great advantage that Frederick has is he has the army and the culture that his ancestors gave him. Right. You can argue, but there are few armies in the pre modern period better than the Prussian army of seventeen forty. Now, Friedrich will get that entire army killed pretty quickly, but he doesn't have to worry about tactical prowess, right? Even as early as the seventeen twenties, I found documents from the seventeen twenties in the French archives where they're already talking about how good the Prussians are. They haven't even seen them fight a war, but they already know how good they are because they're watching their exercises. So Friedrich doesn't even have to be a good tactician. I mean, he, he is. Anybody who's, who's studied the Battle of Woyton, I mean, it's, it's on par with Canny as a great tactical operational execution. Uh, but he, he's starting from a much higher floor than Maurice is. You know, the French are, are in the 18th century, the French are axiomatically brave, but not necessarily disciplined or skilled. Um, that's kind of the trade-off, and and again, again, it's another podcast. But there's a lot of debate about what the French soldier is in the 18th century. So yeah, I, I think I think Maurice is what he should be. I think he's an operational, strategic level commander. I think he leaves the probably should have left some of the tactical details to his subordinates. Um, but I, as I said, I think he's one of the the earliest of the modern commanders who truly understood that you know the battlefield is not the end; it's the beginning, and of course. What Frederick is doing in Prussia is he's trying to find the formula that Napoleon will later perfect, where at Austerlitz, Napoleon not only wins the battle, but he also wins the war, where if you can collapse the grand strategic, strategic, operational, and tactical into the tactical level, war is really easy. It's a problem later when winning the battle doesn't win him the war as in 1812, but that's what they're all searching for. That's what they're all looking for. And Friedrich knows, he knows he has to go like a rocket at the victory, because if he doesn't, his enemies are just going to overrun him. And he gets very lucky they don't do that in the Seven Years' War. But here, he is very canny. He's very savvy about how he's playing the war. I think Sachs is much, in many ways, Sachs is his opposite because he's much more methodical. Sax uses that expertise he has as a staff officer, as a planner, as an engineer. And he's able to plan out battles and campaigns in a way you don't necessarily see Frederick doing. Not because he couldn't, I just, I don't think he needed to. So I think what, I think what Maurice is doing is he's operating with the tools he's given and he's doing the best he can with them. It wins him great honors. He becomes one of the six martial generals in French history. There have only been six. Four of them were named by Louis Fourteenth, and then one of them was one of Napoleon's marshals, much after Napoleon, uh, Marshal Soult. So he is one of the six, at least in theory, best commanders in French history. So very different, a very different style from Frederick. I think you're, I think you're right to point that out and to, to, to point out some of its details.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. So what ends up happening to Maurice after la Chapelle, or Aachen, what have you, uh, in 1748 so what happens after the war
1: yeah so that's a both a fascinating and a tragic story so he is granted the estate of chambord which if your listeners are familiar with the kind of it's a classical kind of neo-medieval french chateau it's it's the one that's got all the weird spires and cupolas it's just kind of you know when you picture a french chateau in your mind you're picturing chambord um, so basically what he does is He kind of hangs out on Chambor. Uh, He had raised a couple of Ulan companies because he appreciated the Austrian use of light forces. So picture a retired general in the late 1740s on this estate with these companies of light troops who are largely just criminals they're terrorizing the countryside. Uh, Maurice is Lutheran, so he he's able to become the governor of Strasbourg, uh, which is the key city in, in eastern France in Alsace. And he basically he just hangs out at Chambord and has a bunch of orgies. That's <laughs> what he does for the last couple years of his life. He, he dies young. He dies in 1750 for reasons that are probably obvious. And uh, that's you know that's it's the abrupt end of his story. <laughs> well. Uh... A player to the end, I guess. Yeah, he he died the way he lived.
0: <laughs> All right, well, on that note, I would like to ask you a question I love to ask any guest on my podcast. Uh, do you have any parting wisdom to share with the audience?
1: Yeah, I think there's two things to take away from from Maurice's life and career. Uh, one of those is, of course, the the might have been right. If he manages to make it another 10 years, France probably does much differently in the Seven Years War. They probably don't keep getting beaten by the small army of Brunswick. Um, as well, Lohendal also dies, it's, I think, 1754. So he and his protege both die before the next war. I think it's, it's one of those quirks of history that, you know, history could have gone very differently if the, if they hadn't happened. Uh, but the other thing I think that's worth pointing out is, you know, a, as I said kind of at the beginning, we often view this time period in these wars purely through the lens of Friedrich and the Prussians. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that lens as long as it's not the only one. And I think what Maurice, Maurice shows us is as a commander and as a commander of French forces, there's more going on, particularly in the Austrian succession, than just what's happening with the Prussians, right? After all, it is the Austrian succession. So that, I think, is a lesson worth taking away from this. The other thing on a personal level I think people should take away from Maurice is that Friedrich is not the only way to do it. Frederick the Great is, I mean, he's the Great for a reason, but at the same time, he's not the only way you do it. Uh, A a discussion I have with my World War II colleagues all the time is, and and I teach officers in the U.S. Army, so this is a discussion we have with them, too. Everybody wants to be patent. Everybody wants to be the hard-charging cavalry commander who's running his tanks through the enemy formations, you know, probably has a saber out. But, you know, World War II, yes, Patton helped win World War II, but World War II was also won by a bunch of largely anonymous commanders who were not hard-charging, saber-rattling Pattons, people like William Simpson. Uh, or Patch or Jacob Devers. And Maurice shows us that there's another way to do it. You can be a successful commander. You can be a wildly successful commander and not be a Frederick. Um, you can be a meticulous planner. You can be oriented more towards kind of the science of war rather than the art of war. Uh, you don't always have to lead from the front. Um, there, there is kind of a staff model of a successful commander, just as there's the, you know, Friedrich Seidlitz patent model and and neither of them is better than the other Uh, the secret of course is good armies have both so that that's that i think is i think all of these things are are good takeaways Um, and if people are interested there are a couple really good books on on the war uh, by reed browning and by ms anderson they're both called the war of the austrian succession Um, so i'd encourage people to read those
0: yeah absolutely well Thank you so much for your time. I definitely learned a whole lot and I'm sure the audience out here will learn a whole lot as well. Thank you so much for having Thanks for having me. It's, a, it's been a joy. Well, there you have it. The old cliche goes that there's more than one side to every story and I believe that today's episode illustrates just that. I can't thank Dr. Abel enough for being on this podcast of mine. It truly was an enlightening time. To conclude today's episode, I must tell you that it is crucial to remember to expand your perspectives. To quote Dr. Abel, Frederick is not the only way to do it.